Imagine walking into an art gallery where paintings of all colors, styles, and sizes adorn the walls. Each masterpiece tells a story, captures an emotion, and connects with visitors in a unique way. But what if you had the desire to own one of these works of art, yet no guide or map to lead you to the right place, no curator to answer your questions, no clear path to make that painting your own? In this make-believe world, the art remains tantalizingly out of reach, beautiful to behold, but impossible to possess. The desire to own something unique and the journey towards making it yours can be a thrilling yet overwhelming adventure. In the world of B2B SaaS, the art gallery is your software, and those potential buyers are potential customers, each looking for a product that resonates with their specific needs and desires. Just as the art enthusiast needs guidance, understanding, and an accessible path to ownership, so too do your potential buyers require a seamless and intuitive process to discover and purchase the software that will solve their problems. Empowering these potential buyers is not just about making the sale. It's about guiding them through a thoughtful journey, allowing them to connect with the product, and making the purchase process as simple and enjoyable as wandering through an art gallery. And at the end of the day, it's about making it easy to buy your product. Enter Melissa Kwan, an artist in her own right in the world of SaaS. Her canvas is her business, and her brush strokes are the decisions she makes to align her company with what makes her and her customers happy. She understands that empowering potential buyers isn't just a sales tactic, it's a philosophy, a lifestyle design, an elegant dance between meeting business goals and enhancing customer experience. With her expertise in building a company that's 100% sold through the internet, she's crafted a model where customer desires meet business acumen in perfect harmony. In today's episode, we explore with Melissa Kwan the importance of knowing what you want in both life and business, the art of building a company that resonates with personal values, and the science behind making the software purchase process as delightful and accessible as a leisurely stroll through an art gallery. Get ready to delve into the world where SaaS meets the heart, where business goals align with customer happiness, and where empowering potential buyers becomes a joyous symphony of success. From Paddle is Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. I'm Ben Hillman, and on today's episode, Melissa Kwan speaks with Andrew Davies about empowering the buyers of your software. They talk about personal philosophy in business decision-making, online sales and product development, building business with friends and family, work-life balance and lifestyle design, and strategies for startup success. After you finish the episode, check out the show notes for a field guide from today's episode. Then, while you're leaving your five-star review of the podcast, tell us what resonated most about our guest's advice. Melissa, fantastic to have you here. Perhaps you can just give me the, as, as we just warm up here, why don't you give me the potted history of Melissa and some of the experiences you've had traveling, building businesses, bootstrapping. Give us a bit of the highlights for us. 13 years in startups now, working on my third e-webinar, all bootstrapped. I lived in New York to grow my previous startup, decided that it was better to redirect our rent to Airbnbs. I think four years ago, we left New York to travel full time. So did that for three years, saw the world, discovered Amsterdam, fell in love with it, started meeting friends here and then ended up kind of settling in Amsterdam where I am right now. But we really just spend three months here and then the rest of the year just trying to find warmer places to be. So that's kind of a super high level, my background. So outside of Amsterdam, where's your favorite place you've worked? Thailand. But it's 
you know, for me, like work and life are kind of one thing, you know, so it's not like, oh, we're traveling to work here. It's it's like because we want to be there. But work for, for me has like we've always had remote teams before it was cool because we couldn't afford it. <laughs> we couldn't afford an office. So now it's just like, hey, where do you want to be? And, and let's go there and chill out for a bit. So it sounds like you're early on multiple now cool trends uh, moving from you know the, the VC world where many people are now wanting to bootstrap, moving from big cities where many people are wanting to make sure they're able to be remote and from having in office teams where now many, many people are wanting teams you know spread across the world for talent, but also for cost. You know, how much of that was you know, necessities, the mother of invention? And how much of that did you see coming around the corner? In my previous startup, I mean, I, I ran two startups for 10 years. So I've run now eWebinar for, you know, three and a half, four years. I learned that I am a really bad people manager. Like I am just not good at hiring, recruiting, firing. Coming to the startup, I knew that I didn't want any employees. I wanted to build a company strictly on contractors. But I think as a bootstrapper, like working with contractors is not always a choice. And for, for us, like it is a choice, but it's also not a choice. It is a necessity because how can we possibly compete with any salaries in the West? Like it's just not possible. So I really, I, I knew that, you know, working with contractors is not really just optimizing costs and making this company possible, but it also allows you to hire people for really specific tasks where I really don't need them full time. I love working in contractors because they get to maximize their earnings per hour because they're really just doing that one thing for many, many clients. And we get to have the best person for the job. So I've always I've always really liked that. But also, I think nowadays people just they love being their own boss, right? Like we don't have limits on what you can and cannot do if you're part of this company. But I also think a lot of people think if I have a contractor, that person's not working very hard or that person is not dedicated to my company. And I don't believe that's true. Like, I think you get to define, you know, how you get to work with that contractor. And we have over 10 on our team. I would say like eight or nine of them are, are full time. But because they're spread around the world, just accounting wise, we pay them as a contractor. And if they worked on a side project, that's totally fine with me. So it sounds like one of the constants behind some of your experiences is the ability to build companies with very little resource. Talk to me a bit more about that and what are the challenges, but also the opportunities of operating under those constraints. And then particularly when it comes to zero dollar marketing and go to market when you don't have capital to fund it? I think the challenges are obvious, right? I think a lot of people listening to this, if you're a bootstrapper, you know, like I don't have to explain the the constraints of building a business when you don't have money, right? Like I would love to build an all-star team, people with experience, but a lot of times you just have to find someone you can afford for the highest and best use, right? And you do have to make a lot of sacrifices. Your company doesn't grow as fast. You can't spend any money in marketing, and I don't mean like you can spend a little, like zero. There's no money in marketing. You can barely pay, you know, your own your own team. I don't. I haven't paid myself for four years. But I think the opportunity is something that I've also heard, you know, Patrick Campbell talk about a lot as well. Is you are forced to listen to customers. You don't get, you know, I think a lot of times when you buy revenue, like that's what someone does. Like you have a lot of money, you throw money in ads, and you buy revenue. You get a false sense of success, right? You don't have any false sense of successes when you bootstrap a company. You hear everything, every opinion matters, you listen to every single feedback, and you really meticulously execute the ones that you know are going to make a difference for your business. So whether that's going to be 
earning a new customer or retaining a, a current customer, every single decision is around protecting revenue and getting new revenue. And I think that just allows you to build a significantly better product. It also allows you to be a significantly better salesperson and storyteller and marketer for your own business as you have to be, especially if it's still founder-led. If you are so lucky to get to that point of profitability, then you can start reinvesting some of that profit into maybe pay channels. But at that point, like 90% of marketing is an incredible product. And at that point, you've got an incredible product. So I think there's, I, I certainly think that the benefits outweigh the cost of, especially in the beginning, bootstrapping. I find it really interesting that in the bobbly times, I increasingly saw founders who wanted to delegate away the responsibility for those first sales or wanted to delegate away the responsibility for that early go to market. And it sounds like that's something that you don't do. You own that and own that responsibility. Let's help the audience here. What are your tips? What are the, the frameworks you use when it, when it comes to founder-led sales, the early stage of winning that first 10 customers? A lot of people want to delegate away that like that responsibility because sales is just hard, right? Like I've been a salesperson before I started businesses. So my last job that I worked for was from SAP. I was trained by many different sales coaches. I love the win, but most founders are, are not that way. So I, and the thing is like learning to deal with rejection, like emotionally detaching yourself from rejection is a learned skill that I've been fortunate enough over the years to to have acquired that. But I get it. If someone else can make the sale, then I don't have to go and get rejected. But especially in the early on, like when you build a product in a silo and it's brand new, no one's seen it. If you are not listening firsthand to what those objections are, you're not connecting your product with the story that people want to hear. And that's I, I think that could be really detrimental to a startup because that basically determines your roadmap. Right. What do I work on first? What are the bugs I have to fix? What are the ones that are not important? What are the new features that I'm going to work on? I think that's really dangerous when it comes to. And that's why I believe in founder led sales, especially, you know, in the beginning is like and, and just using myself as an example, like we built eWebinar because it was solving a problem that I lived with for five years. When I started selling this product, I was telling the story that I wanted to tell. But how people were reacting to it when I was trying to sell to them was completely different. So then I had to rewrite my pitch according to the objections that I was getting while weaving in my own story to make it more human. I think some of the tips that I would have around founder-led sales, uh, number one is like, no matter how hard it is, do it yourself, but also understand that no one's born a great salesperson. Sales is a science, right? It's not like a personality. And the good news is because it's a science, everybody can learn it. It's a science of figuring out how to align what you're saying with what you want someone to hear. And I think it's the best relationship builders know how to align the two because a lot of times what you're saying is not what they want to hear. I think the most effective way to sell something is first to tell your story, like to really tie your, like, why are you the best person to build this company, to build this product, right? Like there's so many people out there, but why are you the person to, to solve this problem for me? So really position yourself as, as the expert. And the next thing to do, which I, I don't think a lot of people do, I've rarely heard this in a sales pitch, is address the competition up front. Before you do the pitch, before your presentation, before the demo, talk about the status quo. Like, why do you exist? What are the shortcomings of the competition? And the reason why that's important to get out of the way is you have to assume that your prospect has already done their research. Like, they know your other five competitors that are out there. 
So if you don't get that objection out of the way throughout your sales pitch, they're just going to be thinking, well, how are you different than this? How are you different than this? I'm going to wait until the end for me to ask this question. So you almost want to like get their mind off of that objection before you go into your demo. And then after you address the competition, then you talk about your solution. It could be a demo. It could be a sales presentation. But I think the mistake a lot of people make about delivering their sales pitch is they get too technical about what the product is. Right. If you're a CRM, you don't have to talk about how you insert a lead. You only have to talk about the four or five things that make you unique and why you exist in the market and why you're better and different. And the way that I suggest telling that is not in like, oh, here's the feature and how you do it. We have it and other people don't. It's connect a mini story of how that feature changes somebody's life. You know, it could be, you know, I have this feature, my customer used it and, you know, he increases productivity by 10 times. Like that's much more human, I guess, for lack of a better term. And it's much better way for me to understand how that feature impacts my life. And then at the end, I think a lot of people actually also miss this is like ask for the close, like whatever that close is, maybe it's, you know, sign up for a trial, maybe it's book a call with our sales team, or can we send you a proposal? Like, what do you think about this? Right? A lot of people are just like, oh, yeah, my sales pitch is over, my demo is over. And, and that's it. There's no follow up because people are kind of scared. That's a rejection. If I don't ask, then I don't get rejected. But asking for the close, if you don't do it, then you've just wasted, you know, 30 minutes of your time and, and someone else's time. So I think these are like the main tips that I would have as to how to deliver the most effective sales pitch. So take us back to the, you know, three, three and a half years ago, the early days of eWebinar. You know, how do you go out and win those first 10 customers? What what were some of the knockbacks? What were the rejection that you had to deal with as part of that habit building? And what were the successes you saw? How did you win those first few? I was fortunate enough to have, you know, two companies before this. So I had a potential customer list. And, you know, there's no magic bullet, right? It was just a lot of hard work. I just went out, I made a list on Google Sheets of every single person. I just went down my phone, went down on my emails, every single person, every company that I think could use this product. So it was just like name, company, email, or phone number. And then I just went down the list like two weeks before we were like we were about to release the product to the public. I just went down the list and got in touch with every single one and just wanted to get on a call with them to tell them what I'm doing next. Because I, I know a lot, a lot of people knew that I had sold my previous company, just got on a call to tell them what we were doing next. If it was interesting for them, then I would ask if they wanted to get on an onboarding call to try the product. But the main difference is we didn't have a beta or an alpha. Like I wanted everybody to know because we're bootstrapped. So I wanted to collect revenue from day one. And yes, it probably took us an extra six months to build the product because I wanted to get credit cards from day one but I also didn't have the time to waste. So everybody that wanted to try the product, they knew that they were getting a 60-day free trial instead of 14. At the end of 60 days, they could either keep the subscription or cancel, but they knew they were paying. For about eight weeks, I probably did about eight to 10 demos per day. And that kind of went against, you know, what we do at eWebinar, but that was so important for me to figure out the one pitch that I knew could close people if I didn't talk to them. So if I hadn't done hundreds of those demos, I would not be able to come up with that one polished pitch that I knew I could just set on like autopilot. And since then, it's been, you know, two years since then, I probably have done on eWebinar over 5,000 demos. 
and I've never done a single one of them live. So we're definitely going to come back to that because I know uh, making that journey frictionless, both from yourself operationally, but also from the customer's perspective is something that's really important here. And we want to learn from that. That first eight weeks, 10 calls a day, five days a week. So that must be near on a 400 different uh, conversations you had. Did that get you that first, you know, when you think about that 60 day trial, did that get you that first batch of clients? Did you see churn in that process? Talk to me about what the success rate was there. I think we got, so in those 60 days, I think we got something like 130 signups. I think over 80% of those converted to to a paid subscription. But a lot of these were one or like were one or two degrees removed, right? Because these were like old customers, old partners, friends of mine that like I knew they had this problem. And I knew this problem so well because I lived with this problem for, for five years, right? So I could speak to their pain. I knew their business. But your immediate network runs out pretty quickly if you're burning through it that fast. <laughs> so we had to figure out a lot more other ways to, to get the word out and beyond those, for, I guess, first half year. There wasn't a ton of churn, but I, I guess you guys would know that over time, of course, people sign up, they're enthusiastic about it. They don't actually get on, you know, they, they have intention to, to start automating their webinars, but six months goes by, they haven't done it. So eventually they hit the cancel button. But, you know, we serve an SMB, you know, market. So that's bound to happen. I remember probably three months ago, I went into a software procurement process and um, there were a few different vendors I was looking at for this particular tool. And I went through that painful process that I know you will have experienced and are actively trying to reduce where I knew what I wanted. I wanted to get a bit more information, but the first conversation had to be a detailed one with someone gathering some discovery questions off me. And it felt like something I could have done in multiple other formats asynchronously, but I had to get on a 30 minute discovery call before I went forward to find pricing, to find detailed questions about my integrations that I wanted to dig into. Talk to me about sales led versus product led and how you see those two blend with an automated process and really how the sales process is really about getting out of the customer's way. Yeah. I mean, that's such a big question, right? And there's nothing more annoying as a buyer in their research journey, clicking on pricing and getting like, contact me on all their pricing charts, saying book a demo, and then you get like a calendar link and it's not even in your time zone. Or like you have to fill in a form and all the questions are required. And you're like, I just want to see how this works. Like, why can't I just see how this works? Right. And then you go to like YouTube and then you search to see if there's like some video demo or something like that. So that's definitely the process that we're, you know, we're, we're trying to eliminate. Unfortunately, especially in like the world of software, a lot of companies are, are still playing that game. And I love quoting this. There's a report from TrustRadius called B2B Buying Disconnect. And in 2022, I think the research says 87% of buyers want to do their own buying journey without talking to a salesperson. 57% of people already buy without talking to a salesperson. And this year, a year later, it's 100% of people want to do their own research in their buying journey. And if you think about like how we buy software, it's just so antiquated, right? Like if Andrew, if you want to buy TV, like what's the first thing that you do? You go to Amazon, you read, yeah, you Google it, you read the reviews, you ask your friends, you get all the information and then you walk into a store and say, can you help me tell the difference between A and B, right? People still want to engage with a salesperson, but only at my own time. I don't want to get on a discovery call to see if I'm worthy of more information. It's just not a great buying experience. But I also think it is such a great opportunity for companies that understand this to leverage information transparency as your greatest competitive advantage. What if I'm trying to tell, buy, you know, tell the difference between A and B? And when I go to A, I get this contact form. But when I go to B, 
I get to hop into a demo right away. Like that's the experience I remember. That's the one I love. And that's the one I'm going to tell my friends about. So I think there's a lot of these sales-led companies that try to get every single lead to talk to their BDR or salesperson because they feel like I like I have all the information. If they don't talk to me, they're not going to understand it. But that's just not how we buy anything nowadays. So why is it that when we buy software, we're forced into this process that everybody hates? But when we're a seller, we also want that process. When we're a buyer, we don't want that process, right? So that's kind of the B2B buying disconnect. But I think huge opportunities for companies that understand this to better align their sales and marketing strategy to what their customer actually wants, right? Give people the information and the power to discover information and research at their own time. Maybe I don't want to do it between nine to five because I'm busy. Maybe I want to do it at nine at night or maybe I want to do it on the weekends. I should have the option to do that. And the craziest thing is a lot of companies selling product-led products are running sales-led processes. Like there are so many companies I've been to that that would say, oh, this is the best product-led software that you can have. But when I go and get a demo, I have to fill in a form. I fully believe that if you give the buyer everything that they want, give them the journey that they enjoy, that's part of your brand. That's part of your product. And that's the message that you want them to tell and write about. So what we do, we, we give everybody information to everything. We're not scared that our competitors are going to come. And like, I know they've picked apart our product the same way that we picked the, them apart. Right? Good people are so scared to share information because they're like, oh, what if someone sees this? Well, guess what? They already know. They already know what you're offering, your pricing. So we give everyone everything. And if they you know, want to talk to us, then, then they come to us. But most people just sign up on their own. When distribution is the main battleground, every company can really have that competitive advantage by moving value as close to the edge of the customer as possible, which I guess is what you're saying here, that you're, you're trying to open up as much value, as much information as possible, as close to the customer as possible. Let's just make this really practical for a bunch of the founders that will be listening or go-to-market leaders will be listening who are thinking about how they can do this with their own product. Talk us through how do you create and script an on-demand demo? How do you do this um, from the inside out? I think the the important thing to understand is the difference between a one-on-one demo and an on-demand demo. Like it is so much easier like having been in sales for almost 20 years now, to sell one-on-one because I can react to you. I can address your objections. I can bounce off your humor. Like it's most people can sell one-on-one even if they're not a great salesperson. But selling on demand and making a demo on demand means you're selling to someone without ever talking to them. So how do you close someone without ever talking to them? So I think the major difference is if you understand that, then you'll also understand that if you're delivering an on-demand demo, you have to address your prospects' objections before they even come up. So in your scripts, you already have to address all the things they're thinking in their head. And the only way to do that is to understand the major objections that most prospects are going to have, which is running a process that I did before is before I automated my own demo, I probably did over 200 one-on-one demos and gathered all the information I needed, the most common objections, and then I used that to script my on-demand demo before I automated it. So I have five elements that I've kind of lightly touched on previously, but I have what I call the five elements of an on-demand demo. So imagine you're making a video demo that you're going to send to everybody. What are the five most important elements that you're going to have in there? Number one is the agenda. The reason why you want to have the agenda is because you don't want people to, you don't want people to wonder where this is going, right? It really sets their mind towards like, okay, in the next half hour, these are the things that I'm going to go over. So then they don't get antsy about, oh, do I have enough time? Should I shut this off, right? It just helps focus, but also it helps them understand where in the process you are as you go through your different highlights. 
Number two is to tell your story. Why are you the best person to do this? Build credibility. I've been in Saros for 13 years. I've experienced this, this problem for five. This is a product that I wish existed. Like that's my story. And then number three is talk about your competition, but don't mention the names. You don't need to say, we have this, but all of our competitors suck. And these are, this is why they suck. That's not what I mean. When I say address your competition, it's more about the status quo. Like what is the state of the world that you're trying to change? And a really great way to address the competition is to say something like, I tried to use similar products before. These were the things that I found that were missing. And this is why we built these features into our product to address this gap in the market. Anyone who's done their research that agrees with you is going to start nodding, right? In their head, they're going to say yes. And any salesperson will know you want the person to say yes as many times as they're in their head as possible in the next half hour. And then as you go through your demo, you pick four to five key features that make you unique and you tell them as customer stories. You tell them as success stories. This is a, you know, a scheduling feature and our customer used this and was able to run this around the clock. Like don't just go through the features as it is without connecting a benefit to it and how you've improved someone's life. And then at the end is just ask for the close. Hey, sign up here, book a call here. If you want a proposal, click here, whatever it might be, but make sure you ask for the close and ask for a next step. And that's it. Like if you have these five elements within your on-demand demo, within your video, I guarantee you, you'll see a much higher close rate than if you just said, hey, this is our product. Give us a call. We've just gone through the skeleton of what makes a great demo. Can you talk to me a bit about some of the worst demos you've ever been part of, either given or received? I've been in demos where they don't even tell me their name, like let alone tell the story. And the thing is, if you're if you're a salesperson delivering the demo, you don't have to tell your story. You can tell the company's story. Why are you the company that I want to work with? Like I've had a lot of people that just goes right into the product. And I think the worst, like really the worst demos are the ones that just do a click through of the product because it doesn't really help me understand how you're different than the competition that I'm already looking at. You're making me do my own research and not helping me validate the research that I've already done. And then, of course, as a salesperson, I always take note when people don't ask for a CTA. That doesn't make it a bad demo. It just makes you a bad salesperson. And we're seeing an increasing number of companies that you know go beyond demos into on-demand demos, but into sandbox experiences or live product experiences, right? And that's the heartbeat of product-led growth when the, the product itself becomes the instrument for or the lens for you know monetization, upsell, etc. Do you have any kind of rules of thumb of when you think this is a necessary stage for a product versus just giving them access and letting them go? Yeah. I mean, you mean in the realm of like letting someone actually access your product? Yeah. Is it about product complexity? Is it about the number of people signing off, the annual contract value? You know, what are the ways that mean that this is a necessary phase versus just go and get going? I know that there are products like that that exist. Uh, I mean, they're called interactive demo products. I personally don't see a lot of value in those, but I also don't sell large enterprise solutions anymore. I think where those types of demos create the most value is when you're in complex sales cycles and you need to give your champion something to take back to their team. But I would really use those things as more of a closing mechanism like when you're so deep into that buying cycle that like I know this person's going to buy and if I don't give them this to sell the team or sell sell it up then they're not going to buy I don't really see that as a top of funnel product what I'm talking about as an on demand demo like that's more of a top of funnel thing that that you would do is like it allows you to cast a really wide net but to give someone access to your product I think would be like way further down the funnel that's how I would treat it. Talk to us a little bit about your 
your go-to-market right now. So you say you've got nine or 10 contractors. Who is working on the growth of your business and how much of the growth of your business is now fully automated? I am the primary person working on the growth of my business. I wish there were more, but you know, bootstraps. Yeah, so we actually invest a lot in content and SEO and we own that strategy. Our COO, who's also our product person, he owns our entire content strategy. So we create, I think last year we created over 200 pieces the content we're slowing that down now just because last year we were still we're still fairly new and we needed to exist in the internet the majority of my day is figuring out how to get more eyeballs for free and you know it's not really free because of my time but last year i started writing on you know linkedin once a day on the weekdays to share my experience bootstrapping three startups to create an audience around my experience and my expertise because ultimately like bootstrap founders and companies that are not well resourced are our best customers because we are almost an extra person an extra set of hands so i want to speak to that community so i took some courses on like linkedin algorithms and how to write on linkedin and how to create content and i started trying my hand at that but the thing that i love about creating content is it forces you to think about your business in a different way. So I do it also for that. And then we, of course, invest in a lot in constant SEO, but we also do a lot of kind of like in-product collaborations. So we do a lot of like technical integrations and leverage, you know, other people's audiences to grow our own. And actually last year, I started marketing myself on podcasts, just getting onto different podcasts, talking about my story, my journey, sales, marketing, you know, anything people want to talk about. I think last year I was on over 60 podcasts. So that's also zero dollar marketing that I think is hugely underutilized because, you know, chatting to, to someone you like is pretty easy. <laughs> like, what you know, we're doing right now. And since then, I've also been like consuming a lot of podcasts. So that's also how I learn about other marketing channels as well. And the new thing that I'm trying is figuring out how to repurpose all this content that we've created into other channels. So I haven't really figured that that piece out yet. But it's really like building an audience, lots of content, long form blogs and getting on podcasts. So let's just zoom out um, before we finish here. You've talked a bunch about bootstrappers being your market, you being a bootstrapper. It's definitely coming back into coming back into vogue post the uh, heady heights of valuations from VCs in 21, 22. Talk to me about what you're seeing as trends within the bootstrapped world, particularly given, you know, we're seeing hundreds and hundreds of new startups on the generative AI APIs. You're standing on the stock shoulders of giants, people releasing products really quickly, therefore competition going up. Yeah, how are you thinking about the broad space? If you've got more products in you, who do you think in the market who are doing a really good job of bringing products to market on a really, really low budget. So, I mean, the trend I see is everyone wants to do it, but also because it's hard to raise money right now. I would say very few like VCs or, or even funders are giving capital to zero revenue ideas, right? Zero revenue companies. You have to get your company to some amount of revenue before you can even start having these capital conversations. Luckily for companies like, you know, Capchase, for example, they're giving you loans and, and lines of credit based on MRR. But that also means that you have to have have probably at least like twenty to twenty five thousand monthly before you can even start having that conversation. So that's kind of the the trend I see is like because people aren't able to raise a lot of money, they're forcing themselves into bootstrapping. But I also think that since the pandemic, people have really been forced to think about lifestyle. Like, how do I want to live? Because now they they spend all this time at home and they realize, oh, I actually don't enjoy traveling for work that much. So I'm also seeing a trend of people reevaluating work life balance. I think a lot of people 
might think that bootstrapping is a financial choice. But for someone like me, it's a lifestyle choice. Like I want to spend more time with my friends and family. I want to build a lifestyle business, not a unicorn business where I invite people onto my board and have to build my business a certain way. Like I don't want to slave myself for my business. So I think a lot of people are also starting to to think about that as well as kind of the decision making, you know, factor. And on your travels, do you ever meet up with other other bootstrappers? My entire social life is just for fun. <laughs> I don't do any networking, anything work related unless I'm actually working. In my previous startup, I spent so much time traveling for conferences and trade shows and living in New York and networking that like one of my non-negotiables coming into eWebinar was I never want to do another networking event or conference again. So <laughs> I don't do any of those things. Are there any other principles that are formed in you by costly experience? It sounds like you know, raising capital is one of them. No networking is another. Well, are there any of those that are formed by negative experience that you're holding fast to? I never do live demos, live webinars ever again. That was my entire life in my previous startup. Of course, yes, like I built a product to support that, but that was my non-negotiable before I decided to start this business. So before I started any business, I wrote a list of all the things I didn't want to do and the things that I must have. And eWebinar, like that was how I eliminated 95% of ideas and eWebinar was the one that fit best into that. It was also, I only wanted to build a business that could be 100% sold through the internet because I didn't want to do any more in-person sales. And I, oh, the last thing is I wanted to build a company with friends. I wanted to be able to, you know, share my successes with with friends and family. So a lot of people on our team are actually friends of ours, like really, really good friends of ours. We do have some friends and family funding, but those are all like our best friends. They're not like loose acquaintances. Like these are people we spend holidays with and people we imagine one day we could do an investor retreat on the company's account and all of our friends will be there. It's been great to get a glimpse into the kind of lifestyle design that sits behind what you do. And I think it's it's super interesting that we've seen this flip where lifestyle business is no longer seen as a derogatory term in so many rooms. And to see someone like yourself, who's you know really taking that as a positive, being able to design their life for themselves, for their family, for your friends, is super cool to see. Any final thoughts for, again, this audience of, of mostly product-led businesses that are, are listening to this, the audience that we serve at Paddle, on you know perhaps particularly those who are pre-revenue, about to get started, looking at this brave new world and wondering how they win those first few first few clients. What are a few, a few pieces of inspiration or guidance guidance for those people as they meet the market? Yeah, I think there's a, a couple of things. I think a lot of people start businesses based on what they know, like their experience. And and I was one of those people. That's why I had two startups in real estate. That was my work experience. My network was there. I started a business in, whoa, in there, but it's not what I really wanted to do. So I think a lot of people think, oh, where, where are my experiences? I'll build a business on that and then I'll try to be happy after. But that's an inverted triangle, right? Like I realized after selling my previous startup, that was the reason why I was never really happy. And I couldn't really like, I couldn't really enjoy my successes because I just didn't love the industry. After I had a bit of time to selling that startup to think about like what I wanted to do next, I actually inverted that triangle and started with what are the things that make me happy? And that's where that list of non-negotiables came from. What are the things that make me happy? What is the business that fits into that? And what are the skills I need to get there? So now I'm still learning the skills to build this business. But even though it's hard, I know that I'm serving the foundation of my happiness to really think about what are the things that make you happiest and understand that you can always acquire the skills to get there. You don't have to do something just because that's where your experience has always been. So I think that's number one. And number two is I think we spend 
so much time working on our business and then in our business that we forget that the reason why we started this in the first place is for freedom. We want this for financial freedom. We want more time to spend with friends and family. We want to travel. But the bigger our business gets, the more in it we spend because we think if I work harder, I'm going to be more successful. If I work more, I'm going to be more productive. But that's not the case. We don't we don't need to work harder. We want to we need to work more creatively. Think about the different ways that you can delegate, automate and do a lot less to accomplish a lot more. And don't forget the reasons why you started this in the first place. You can enjoy your life and enjoy your work at the same time. It's not one or the other. And I think the happiest people know how to weave those together and become one thing. And, and that's even though the journey with eWebinar is hard, that's the mission I love the most is being able to create a product that gives people their time back so they can do something else. Shout out to Melissa for being on the show. Now you have a better understanding of empowering your buyers. Today, we talked about personal philosophy in business decision-making, online sales and product development, building business with friends and family, work-life balance and lifestyle design, and strategies for startup success. Make sure to give Protect the Hustle a five-star review and tell us what lesson from today's episode was your favorite. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from Paddle Studios, dedicated to helping you build better SaaS. 